0: The American Thoracic Society, we help the world breathe.
1: Welcome to the Blue Journal Podcasts. Today, we are discussing the article, Incidents and Prognostic Value of the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome and Organ Dysfunction in Ward Patients by Matthew Chirpak and co-workers, Joining me to discuss this article is the first author, Matthew Chirpik. Dr. Chirpik is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary and critical care at the University of Chicago. He received his medical degree from Duke University and a master's degree in public health from the University of North Carolina before receiving a Ph.D. in epidemiology from the University of Chicago. His research focuses on using big data to develop prediction models for detecting clinical deterioration in hospitalized patients in order to decrease preventable death. He is supported by a K08 grant from the NIH, and his work centers on the derivation of predictive algorithms that help identify high-risk ward patients. Also joining me to discuss this article is Dr. David H. Chong. Dr. Chong is the Hospital Director for Critical Care Services for the New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York City, and he is an Associate Program Director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program based at Columbia University. He is a clinician educator and a clinical researcher who is interested in the early detection of disease and the application of quality improvement methods to improve the care of the critical patients, especially patients with severe sepsis and septic shock. He co-chaired the Greater New York Hospital Association's Stop Sepsis Quality Improvement Collaborative, a collaborative that included 58 hospitals uh, that, over four years, improved outcomes and collected data on approximately 20,000 patients. He chairs the critical care leadership network that sponsored the collaborative, and he was also a part of the critical care director's network as the critical care director at Bellevue Hospital and he worked actively to participate in the New York City Health and Hospital Corporation's effort to detect and treat sepsis going back over 10 years ago. He now leads the efforts at New York Presbyterian Hospital to reduce sepsis morbidity and mortality in all hospitalized patients and to meet the New York State and now United States Government Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services sepsis core measures requirements. He also is a member of the Columbia University APGAR Teaching Academy, and he is deeply committed to improving medical teaching and mentoring for students, residents, fellows, and faculty. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Dr. Chirpek, for your recent article in the Blue Journal, I'm going to try to summarize what you and your colleagues did. And it looks like you and your colleagues looked at the hospital records of somewhere around 270,000 patients who were hospitalized in the Chicago area over the course of uh, almost five years. And you found that a, a very high prevalence of SIRS, with uh, SIRS being defined as at least two out of four criteria met among patients hospitalized on the wards. And you also found that the longer patients were in the hospital, the more of them met the two out of four SIRS criteria threshold. You also found that patients who met more criteria for SIRS and patients who fulfilled two out of four criteria for SIRS more often had higher risks for death. Finally, you found that organ failures associated with SIRS also raise the risk for death. Could you describe for us the population you examined, how you examined it, how did you identify cases of SIRS, and also a little bit about the sensitivity analyses that you used, and whether you think your study produces results that are likely to be meaningful for a generalizable larger population?
2: I would be happy to. For this study, our patient population included all patients who spent time on the hospital wards in five hospitals in Illinois over about a five-year period. This amounted to a data set with over a quarter of a million patients. For For each patient, we had every single vital sign collected during their hospital stay, as well as commonly collected laboratory results, such as white blood cell count. Our group's overall interest in research is in using the data in the electronic health record to improve the quality of care for patients on the wards, particularly those at high risk of critical illness. Because sepsis is such a common and important condition for patients on the wards, we decided to investigate the portion of the sepsis definition that we had access to in our data set, namely the SIRS criteria, and also to investigate different organ dysfunctions and their association with mortality. As you know, ward patients in general are an understudied population when it comes to critical care syndromes, with most of the work being done in the ED or in the ICU, and so we thought that this study would fill an important gap in the literature. So to investigate how common SERS criteria were on the wards, we looked at both the proportion of observations in the data set that met at least two of the four SERS criteria, as well as the proportion of patients who ever met SERS criteria during their ward stay, Given that vital signs are typically collected about every four to eight hours or so, while white blood cell count is usually collected only about once per day, we also performed several sensitivity analyses regarding how old the white blood cell count could be to still count as one of the SERS criteria. And in addition, we also performed a sensitivity analysis that only included simultaneously collected vital signs and did not pull any previous values forward to fill in the gaps in the SERS criteria. Overall, it turned out that these additional sensitivity analyses didn't change the major finding of the paper, which is that SIRS is very common on the wards, with almost half of patients meeting these criteria while on the wards during their admission. Lastly, regarding your question about generalizability, I think the fact that our data set included several different types of hospitals, including both community and teaching hospitals, increases the likelihood that similar findings would be seen in the wards and other hospitals.
1: Dr. Chong. Dr. Chong. Do these findings surprise you? I mean, finding uh, that nearly half of hospitalized patients across a pretty broad range of metropolitan and suburban hospitals was so common. I mean, does this surprise you in any way? And also, what do you think that the high prevalence of SIRS means for hospitals that are trying to, you know, identify patients with sepsis to you know, put into
0: place some kind of early identification or treatment plan? No, um, I'm not surprised at the results. I'm actually a little bit surprised at the frequency in which the SERS criteria was activated during the hospital stay, but we've sort of all suspected this in the past, but never sort of quantified it like Matt has. But I I think that it's important to remember when the SERS criteria were developed in 1992 by Bone and colleagues, it was not really necessarily meant as a way of clinically defining and finding patients. So the way we're using it now wasn't how it was first conceived. I believe the idea was to have a very, very broad sense of patients who could have an inflammatory response, who could be septic. And so for research purposes, they wanted to cast a broad net That was for research purposes, and so if you're trying to capture as many septic patients as possible, you're also going to capture people that probably are inflamed that are not septic, and I think the people that actually developed the SERS criteria understood that. What we're doing now with the SERS criteria is probably not what the original founding fathers would have sort of envisioned. The other thing to think about, sir, is I think what's important in the paper that Matt has presented is that... It does have some prognostic value as the increasing amounts of the SIRS criteria increase the likelihood of mortality. And so I think we should be informed that when we're creating a warning system with SIRS that it should be a graded system so that patients who actually have three or four or more uh, SIRS criteria have a different alert or alarm than those who just have two or less. So I think that's really important to consider that SIRS means patients are inflamed or perhaps they're sick and perhaps they have a higher likelihood of mortality. But it doesn't mean that everyone who's two or above needs to have necessarily the same alarm. And so I think a graded system would make more sense. I also think that the data suggests also that the organ failure preponderance, the, the same relationship with organ failure is important. And finally I think to think to remember is that when we put those two things together, that is severe sepsis and septic shock, which is in general what we're looking for because those are the patients with the highest mortality morbidity. To reference another article in the New England Journal in April, the group from Australia and New Zealand found that if you took coded patients with infection and organ failure, which kind of sounds like severe sepsis, and you looked at how many of those actually fulfilled the SIRS criteria, about 80% actually were SIRS positive. Now, it did miss about an eighth of the patients who actually did not meet the SIRS criteria. But 88% may be pretty good when it comes to identifying patients who are sick, not necessarily those patients that are all septic, but that those patients who are actually maybe in need of help that are inflamed and may be at higher risk of mortality. They also found a relationship with increasing SERS criteria and mortality, about 13% for each SERS criteria. So I agree that using just SERS and 2-plus would cause so much alert fatigue with 50% of them going off. But I don't think that we necessarily need to throw out SIRS. We may need to augment the criteria to make sure that it's honing on the patients we want. And I think it's important to remember that early warning systems in the hospital, even though there is this push for finding septic patients, We also care about patients who are not septic, and that the warning system is there to help us rescue patients or to highlight patients that may need more intervention, many of which are septic, but not all, and so I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think that we have to be careful in how we choose those criteria to create those warning systems and to test them appropriately. I think the best way to do this is to actually have a customized way of actually adding more than just one service criteria, obviously, and to maybe add the organ failure definitions as well. So that's something that we could talk more about as well.
1: I want to pick up, Matt, on something that David Jong just mentioned, which is the other recent article that suggested that some aspects of the SERS or sepsis definition may miss a large population or sizable population, especially in the elderly, who actually, in retrospect, turn out to have sepsis. And I'll also point out that the editorial that's accompanying your article in the Blue Journal notes that meeting the two out of four SERS criteria threshold is also, it's, in addition to being highly sensitive, right, your findings suggest that it's highly sensitive. It identifies a lot of people who might be sick but probably don't end up being too sick. It's also kind of nonspecific and that it doesn't do a great job or the the threshold doesn't do a great job of discriminating which patients have a high risk for dying. And I'm reminded of an article. I think it was in Critical Care Medicine. must be like 20 years ago now by Vincent which was entitled, Dear SIRS, I'm sorry to say that I don't like you very much, or something along those lines, where the idea was that many people meet SIRS criteria for reasons that have nothing to do with inflammation or have nothing to do with infection. How do the SIRS criteria help us at this point? you know, 25, 30 years after they were formally put out there as a, as a potential tool for understanding systemic response to inflammation? And, and how does your research inform us about how well these criteria perform in helping us identify these patients?
2: Well, that's a great and a really timely question. As many of our listeners know, the concept of SIRS has been controversial for a long time now, and we certainly agree with the previous comments that SIRS were not meant to be an electronic alert for all the patients on the wards or in the hospital. And on the positive side, I do think that the initial goal, of these criteria, and the other definitions that were made at that time were really important, which was to provide a framework for discussion of sepsis and inflammation, and also to talk to aid in enrollment into clinical trials and for many other reasons. And I think that. These definitions in this framework and likely probably the controversy surrounding them as well has really helped spur great conversations and also the incredible amount of research and also has likely saved countless lives over the last few years. At the same time, I think when you examine the problem and think about what SIRS really is, it's really in a no-man's land when it comes to helping clinicians make decisions at the bedside. First, you know, as was already mentioned, it doesn't really do a good job at identifying accurately which patients are infected. In this respect, it's a lot like the boy who cried wolf. There are just too many false positives, as our paper and the work of others suggests. In addition, as you mentioned with the recent uh, New England Journal of Medicine paper, there are also some patients with infection who are SIRS negative but also have significant risks of morbidity and mortality. I mean, we've all cared for critically ill patients. For example, maybe an older patient with heart disease on beta blockers you know, who, who presents with heart rates in the 70s to 80s. Maybe they're hypothermic and a low but normal white cell count who don't even meet SIRS criteria, and yet we're already admitting them to the ICU and worried about if they're going to make it out of the hospital alive or not. And I think if you think about what is SERS trying to do, we already have suspicion for infection as part of the criteria for sepsis. And so using SERS to actually detect infection seems to be redundant and seems to be not very useful and associated with a lot of false alarms. So I think the second item then is if it's not really going to help us determine who's infected that well, then maybe you should use it as a risk stratifier. But I think, you know, our work and, and, you know, suggests that although each one increment of SERS criteria does increase your risk of mortality, I think we can do better in terms of generating early warning scores for these patients. And as we showed also, meeting different SERS criteria, whether it be white blood cell count versus respiratory rate, also has different associated risks for them. So the SERS criteria of one versus two versus three isn't also a one-size-fits-all. And as was mentioned earlier, the organ failure criteria seem to do a better job of this. So overall, I think it's, you know, I would cast my vote that it is a time for a change, uh, with along with many others in the field. And I also think that the timing is actually, you know, as good as it's going to be, particularly with the latest triad of sepsis clinical trials, in terms of taking a step back and now looking, you know, what are we going to do to move the field forward, particularly for, you know, the understudied population of ward patients who have a high risk of becoming critically ill with sepsis.
1: I want to pick up on a couple of threads that I hear emerging from the comments that you just that both of you just added one is that you know early warning systems are helpful and the source criteria are one form of an early warning system or could be conceived as one form of an early warning system but I think you know what's what's important, at least for me as a clinician, and one of the things that makes me you know interested as a reader of of these kinds of papers is that these kinds of early warning scores, and whether Matt, it's the early warning score that you published a year ago, or any of the other number of early warning scores that are out there, it's that it's really context dependent, right? That Two out of four SIRs positive is going to be very different in, you know, a 37 year old woman who is admitted with pyelonephritis as opposed to an 88 year old man with severe aortic stenosis, dilated cardiomyopathy, and some hepatic insufficiency. And it seems to me that a lot of the early warning scores decontextualize a lot of these data, which leads to some of the lack of specificity and the, you know, the false positive, false negative phenomenon. And and there's a tension there where you really want to develop a system that cones down on things and to eliminate alert fatigue. And I think alert fatigue is something that a lot of institutions are working on. At the same time, you want to have a a system that's sensitive enough that you're going to, you know, not not miss folks. And, and I don't know how to strike that balance. But David, you, know, you, you mentioned a grading system in, in terms of early warning and, and sepsis. And, and I wonder what kind of grading system you have in mind and, and what you think of some of these proposed grading systems that are out there like the Pyro PIRO type uh, of scheme.
0: I think the comments about the organ system is important. I, I, I referenced the work by Dr. Hotchkiss who has sort of coined the idea that every patient is sort of different in terms of sepsis and that when you look at the SERS criteria, you're only looking at a small group of patients that actually can mount an inflammatory response that can be detected by vital signs in one or two labs, whereas a lot of our patients are actually immunocompromised or under-inflamed in that they don't mount that inflammatory response, and so they're not going to meet the SERS criteria, but yet they may have organ failure and need to be in the ICU. So I think the key here is to not necessarily totally rely on a warning system, but the warning system should have elements that include organ failure. I think SIRS can be part of it, but cannot be the only thing. That organ system failure is, I think, an important part of the warning system, as well as laboratory data that could trigger an alert system. And I think the other thing to remember is that the warning system should also be graded in that it just can't be on and off. I think that you should have a system where you can see sort of maybe a green, yellow, red or on a continuum because we know that patients often change. And so trending is often an important thing to look at. Patients who actually may start off yellow can go to green or get better. And that that sort of gives you an idea of the trajectory. And when you use patients themselves as a reference, it can also give you an idea of what direction those patients are going. So I think warning systems have to be customized to both the environment, not just absolute sort of requirements of organ system damage or sort of absolute reference points, but also reference themselves in terms of looking at trends and where they're going and whether, whether they're getting better or not. Clearly, in Matt's paper and, and in other papers where patients are actually improving in some of their organ system scoring systems, they do a lot better, Sofas being, being one of them, showing that in the continuum, you can actually track patients' organ failure rates, and as they get better, their mortality and morbidity actually improve. So having a, a system that will track over time is important. The other thing to remember is, obviously, if you just use one static system, it's going to go off multiple times during their hospitalization, having a system that actually is smart enough to notice a trend and change could also be very, very informative as well. Finally, I think, you know, there are things to add, and many have argued to, to add more lab values as part of the grading system, and I think that's one of the things that we should look at as well. SIRS kind of relies only on vital signs, and I think that using more laboratory values uh, in a warning system would be also very, very useful.
1: Matt, I wonder what your thoughts are as a, you know, person who spent a great deal of thought, time, effort and energy in exploring these ideas of early warnings. How how would you start to try to conceive a very refined early warning system, and whether, whether it's for sepsis or, or for identifying uh, patients who are at high risk for suffering a clinical deterioration, what other kinds of pieces of contextual information would you want to put in there to help understand uh, individual risk for bad stuff happening?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question and an area that I'm really interested in. Some of the different variables that were mentioned in terms of, you know, aortic stenosis or other past medical history, medications that the patients are on, you know, as you know, these data are actually available in the electronic health record. These are things that we actually documented in the notes or documented in other fields of the EHR. And I think if you, if you think about that and then you look around, I think it's easy to see that we are way behind the private sector when it comes to utilizing all the data that we collect in electronic health record in order to help us make better clinical decisions. As you know, companies like Google and Amazon and Netflix are utilizing real-time data and demographic data and previous purchase history data and all sorts of information to make real-time decisions because, you know, it helps the companies make money think, as a field, and I think, you know, a lot of people are interested in doing this and a lot of people are doing, you know, starting to do work in this, is to start pulling these other fields and all this other information that we actually have readily available in many of these fields in real time from the electronic health record in order to make better decisions at the bedside and also to, particularly to help detect critical illness. I think we can do a pretty good job if you, for example, like we did with our our risk score that we published last year are adding on age and vital signs and then laboratory values, you can you can get a pretty good level of accuracy for detecting intensive care unit transfer, cardiac arrest, and mortality. And I think if we continue to add additional things that are available in the HR, I think that will continue to improve our ability to detect, you know, which patients are at high risk of having critical illness while they're on the wards and also potentially which patients are likely to have sepsis or which patients with sepsis are more likely to, uh, to go on to develop septic shock, for example example. So I think we're, you know, we're really at the early stages. I think we really have a lot of exciting work to do in terms of, you know, using big data from the EHR to actually detect these patients and to make sure that we're detecting the right patients and at the same time avoiding alarm fatigue.
1: Matt, I, I want to follow up quickly because I think some of what you said is really fascinating but also contains some downside risk. And that is the following, right? When we work with Google or Amazon, we do a really good job at filling in their databases, right? Every time we place an order on Amazon or every time we click on some suggested product that we might like because of our browsing history or what have you, we're actually populating their database for them happily, right? We do this of our own free will. In the electronic medical record, that's more difficult, right? Because, you know, we have Epic at, in our health system and providers complain bitterly about how the medical record has turned into an exercise in clicking on different fields so that we essentially are populating a database and that really kind of eviscerates the whole purpose of a narrative medical record anymore, right? You end up with these notes that say nothing at all but have populated a database. So it strikes me that without like a really robust natural language processing element that's gonna be able to scan free text fields It may be hard to get some of that information into the data baskets required to come up with one of these really robust kinds of early warning systems. What are your your thoughts on how we're going to get the data into the right places?
2: No, that's a great point. I think one of the many challenges of working with electronic health record data, particularly from a research standpoint, is this aspect of missing data or incomplete data or inaccurately documented data. For example, you know, we know that vital signs should be collected at a particular rate, and that includes things like mental status, And inaccurate respiratory rate, but even though fields like that are often documented, we know certainly from our experience and also from the literature, things like respiratory rate are often documented as 18 or as 20 and typically not any other value. And so I think there's a lot of issues in terms of, you know, both missing data or fields that you'd really love to have for, for example, for identifying septic patients, but just aren't available or aren't documented frequently. And so, you know, I think your your, your thought or idea of having the natural language processing, you know, I think is is certainly an interesting one that many of the other companies actually use in their own, you know, in their own work. And I think, you know, if we can get access in a secure way to the notes and, you know, and perform some of those analyses, you may find some interesting things. But I think first and foremost, I think we really need to start using the data that we're already collecting at a, you know, at a fairly frequent rate for most patients. And that, you know, I think if we go back to some of the suggestions for some early warning triggers, these include, labs that patient, most patients on the wards are getting, vital signs that the patients on the wards are getting, and maybe the medications or some of the nursing documentation that's also in the record. So I think if we start, you at least start there, I think if we're talking, you know, looking into the future of where we'd like to be in terms of risk detection and risk stratification, I think adding in the things that, you know, people do as part of their current routine can get us a lot of the way there and certainly a lot farther than just doing a two out of four service criteria for our patients with sepsis. I just want to make a comment
0: about what Matt said. I think the thing to remember as well is that these early warning systems aren't meant to be perfect and that they're really decision support aids. And so I think what you want to do is create an early warning system that identifies patients who may be going south and who may need intervention, but not necessarily defined as a particular disease. I think that's the key thing to remember about early warning systems is that even though we're trying to tailor it perfectly to a particular disease, I think that we know enough about the data that's available in the EHR to know who is trending in the wrong direction. And I think that the decision support systems in the EHR could help people determine whether these patients are septic or they're having cardiogenic shock or something else, and to allow clinicians to understand What is at their disposal? What needs to be done? And that there is a trend toward higher risk of morbidity and mortality. So in our system that we're creating, we're trying to create it in our institution. We're trying to create decision support aids for the documentation and for the order set so that when they meet a certain set of criteria or a certain alarm, like let's say a rapid response order, or someone who needs an ICU admission that automatically there should be a decision support tool that tells them, oh, is this because the patient is in septic shock, yes or no? And if the answer is no, then basically those decision support tools go away. But if the answer is yes to any of those questions, then there's a little bit of education as to what kind of things you would want to use in an order set, perhaps, and also what kind of things to include in the documentation. So I think it's important, especially in this era of regulation documentation, that we're enabling clinicians to make better choices when it comes to their orders in patients who are not doing well, but also teaching clinicians what kinds of things need to be part of the documentation to make sure that we're doing things correctly. So both a regulatory hint as well as sort of how clinically we should respond to make those things for the work of the Clinicians, both nurses and doctors, something a little bit easier to do.
1: David, you, you just brought up a really important and timely subject, which is that of regulation. And I think that the publication of Matt's article is really sort of, you know, it's it's lucky. You know, it depends how you define luck, I suppose, because as many of us know, as of October 1st, 2015, in the United States, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services began collecting hospital-level data on the performance of institutions for patients who meet criteria for severe sepsis and septic shock. And a big part of this effort is controversial, not only because part of the way that severe sepsis and septic shock are defined have to do with patients meeting a certain number of the SERS criteria. So in effect, what we have is a situation in which US hospitals are finding themselves under increasing pressure to develop plans to facilitate early and rapid identification and treatment of patients with complicated sepsis, including war patients. So how do you think the results of Matt's, you know, and his co-workers' study is going to inform hospitals' efforts
0: to meet these new regulatory requirements? I think the answer is we're not sure, and it's going to depend on how we respond. Just as a quick background, as of October 1st, CMS has endorsed the concept of reporting severe sepsis and septic shock as a core measure. You know, this is very similar to acute MI and stroke and things like that. So there are many elements. There's about 130 elements that need to be reported. It's going to be reported in a retrospective fashion with a sampling methodology that's been used for things like MI. So it won't be all our cases, but it will be, depending on the size of your, your institution, a sampling, I think it's every quarter or so. So that being said, what's going to happen is the criteria are the service criteria plus for the patients with severe sepsis septic shock, a lactate greater than four, or hypotension that requires pressures. And what the federal government has asked is for a number of the service criteria, some demographic data, but also they've asked about things to show that we are compliant with the measures. And to show compliance, you have to date and time when patients got blood cultures, antibiotics, Pressures, fluids, and other measures such as vital signs and lactate. So, the the key for the federal government is that they've asked us to start showing that within the six-hour period, there's a focused physical exam with five elements such as vital signs, cardiovascular, pulse, skin, and capillary refill. But that there is an option to use other invasive and non-invasive measurements such as CVP, uh, central venous O2 sat. Passive leg raise, fluid bolus, or cardiovascular ur- ultrasound. You know, I think it's very controversial what's happening right now. Many of these maneuvers and things that the federal government are asking for as options have not been proven in randomized trials to be of any benefit. It's hard to argue against a focused physical exam, and so I think that's probably not going to change in the future. But I think the the issue here is that. When it comes to the federal government reporting, this is an onus on us that as we're taking good care of our patients, that we also have to document what we're doing. I think overall it's laudable that the federal government is interested in severe sepsis and septic shock, but obviously the devil's in the details, and so for us to document correctly, I think it's going to require a fair amount of heavy lifting among EMRs that need to be modified, but also people that are educating as well as the coders to make sure we're finding the patients that are appropriate. The challenge, I think, is that we as clinicians want to make sure that the regulations reflect what is good practice, and I think that there is an opportunity here for researchers like Matt and clinicians like us to sort of say, hey, listen, we're all for taking better care of septic patients or severe sepsis, septic shock patients. They are the sickest of the sick. But let's come up with regulations that sort of reflect what is effective. We don't actually want to create regulations that cause practice to harm patients. And so I think it's real important that we have a dialogue with the federal government, even though the regulations have started October 1st, that physicians and physicians and researchers have an active dialogue with the federal government to make sure that the regulations reflect the best science and what we know works, and so I think that's really important. Matt's work in terms of looking at SIR's criteria is actually very, very helpful in basically trying to modify or have a discussion with the federal government to say that there may be a better way of finding these patients, identifying these patients, and knowing that the appropriate patients are identified and treated. I think it's key that we do this and we have an ongoing conversation and that this legislation is a living document that it changes with the science, because I think that if we don't challenge this and we don't work on this, we're going to be inappropriately giving fluids and doing all these things to patients that perhaps don't even have sepsis. And I think that the regulatory environment would force clinicians to do things to patients that is inappropriate, and we don't want that to happen. We want the regulations and the goals of our care for these patients to be aligned. I think research like Mac and really the papers in this field would be very, very enlightening to help us hone in on what the right way to identify these patients are, who these patients are, and who should be treated appropriately, and then even have a discussion about what the treatment goals should be as well. So it's it's not just detection of these patients, which is extremely important, but it's also to close the loop to find out that once the patients are correctly identified, what are the correct treatment goals and to make sure we don't do any harm.
1: Matt, you see the the issue from perhaps a slightly different perspective, which is, you know, a view of big data and how that can help inform the process. And you're based on your research and based on what you know about how how these screening tools could possibly work. How would you suggest that we begin to approach the idea of identifying patients with sepsis on the wards in light of the research you're presenting now in the Blue Journal, but also in light of your broader research in general?
2: That's a great question. I I think, first of all, maybe the clearest thing is that given our findings, you know, we would advise folks not to start running SERS alerts in their EHR uh, due to the alarm fatigue. But beyond that, I think both the good and the bad, I think, is that we still have a lot of work to do, I think, to determine what is the optimal standardized way to identify sepsis on the wards. If We start with looking, you know, looking at the literature. Currently, we we do know that at this point, the patients who benefit most from early and more aggressive interventions are those who are infected and that also are critically ill, particularly people who develop septic shock or have a, a high lactate. And because we're leaving the suspicion of infection piece, you know, that determination to the clinicians. The other missing piece then, as we've been discussing, really is to risk stratify the ward patients and to try to figure out which of those patients will need and will benefit from more aggressive therapies. So what we really need is an early warning score for these infected uh, patients, in my opinion. Now, obviously, you know, the average hospital isn't going to be able to run in real-time a you know, 50 variable model on top of their EHR today, but, you know, hopefully that's a direction that over in the future that, that more and more hospitals will be able to do that. And I think groups, I, I understand that there's a task force also working on the definitions of sepsis and looking to find a, a simple tool that you can use at the bedside and also potentially to risk stratify patients is also going to be well needed for the average hospital. And, you know, what these early warning scores could do then is to trigger the clinician, for example, to check a lactate um, and maybe some other measures and in general general to start paying attention to this patient because they know that they're at higher risk than the average patient for developing septic shock. I'm personally aware of some hospitals that are already implementing many of the different early warning scores that are out there in the literature into their EHR to try to identify some uh, patients with sepsis. And we're also running our risk score that we had developed previously in real time in our hospital to detect high-risk patients, you know, high-risk patients overall for intensive care unit transfer or cardiac arrest. But it turns out, as you might suspect, many of those patients are often at least suspected to be infected. But overall, I think what we really need is more data and, you know, and more clinical trials, particularly aimed at decreasing preventable hospital death in ward patients with sepsis. So I think for now, I don't know, you know, we don't have the high-level evidence. The one standardized approach for uh, detecting sepsis on the wards is better than some other standardized approach. But I think given, you know, the increasing amounts of data that we have available to us, the increasing amount of researchers interested in using big data to detect these things, and also I think the, the growing interest and, in, you know, and the, all the excitement that this controversy of SERS and how do you define sepsis brings, I think we're going to see a lot of exciting things over the next few years in this area.
1: Today, we discuss the article, Incidence and Prognostic Value of the Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome and Organ Dysfunctions in Ward Patients, published in the October 15, 2015 edition of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Doctors Cherpec and Chong and I discussed the implications of the main findings of this research, namely that approximately 50% of patients hospitalized on the general medical surgical wards will meet two out of four criteria for SIRS at any given time during the hospitalization, and that the SIRS criteria appear to lack sensitivity and specificity for identifying patients at risk for adverse outcomes and also for developing sepsis. We further discussed the implications of these findings in terms of the broader topics of screening for deteriorating patients or patients at high risk for deterioration, and also for meeting the new Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services requirements for core measures in treating patients with complicated sepsis. Thank you for listening.